This is Being Better, the podcast about the science behind mindsets and practices that make us happier, wiser, and healthier. My name is Julia Spohr, and I am your host. Join us as each week we break down scientific research and bring you true stories of people from all walks of life to help you make better decisions that will shape your tomorrow. serve you the best spaghetti or the best pizza but what we do serve is great conversations that will inspire you to introduce positive change and just live a little happier wiser and healthier so look we might not feed your stomach but we will definitely feed your mind and your soul and today on the menu we have a very tasty chat all about food freedom improving body image intuitive eating about the dangers of diet culture and the myths of quote-unquote good and bad food it's also about how to prevent and overcome eating disorders as well as how to help a loved one struggling with disordered eating but of course a conversation requires two people so in this one i was joined by sherry miller also known as the food freedom therapist She is a licensed professional counselor and she has 15 years of experience as an eating disorder mentor, speaker, educator and advocate. Sherry is also a member of the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals Foundation and the Association for Size, Diversity and Health. In her private practice, she has helped countless patients using cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, and exposure and response prevention therapy. So if you struggle or have struggled with body image, or you want to improve your relationship with food, or practice self-acceptance, and become better at recognizing all the bullshit online regarding diets and quote-unquote healthy living... This episode is exactly for you, so sit back, relax, and enjoy! Hello, Sherry. Uh, Thank you so much for coming. I've been really loving your online content and the wholesome community that you've built, and I'm just so happy when I can find the internet just you know not contributing to like my anxiety but actually serving such a wholesome and helpful purpose and yeah so thank you for that of course thank you for having me uh so before we start I want to ask you for your recommendation so it's one of my favorite segments in which right I ask the guests to share a book or a product or a movie a podcast just something that is making their life better somehow uh so when it comes to the things that are thought-provoking or enjoyable or whatever it is what can you recommend to us uh well I've been reading a book well I just finished it actually that I really enjoyed and it's by Dr. Joshua Woolrich and it's called Food is Not Medicine and he is a physician out of the UK 
who has had his own journey, which he shares a little bit in the book, uh, with disordered eating and body image stuff. And so he, he's sharing a lot of information about food, um, and challenging the notion that, you know, nutrition can cure everything, you know, kind of that wellness, uh, culture stuff that we see a lot of nowadays. And so he's challenging that in his book Mm -hmm. and it was really good. And I enjoyed, both a physician perspective as well as a male perspective on things. Yeah. I mean, it's not a common like approach these days to hear that, right, nutrition will not like heal everything. And I think that is actually very important because I've had that mindset, especially like when I started entering the vegan community. Uh, Right now, I am more sort of embracing all sides of plant-based eating. However, when I entered it, you know, I maybe entered it through a lens of, right, mostly the the diet culture stuff. And so I think it is great to remember that food is food at the end of the day, and there is no such thing as unhealthy foods. As much as we are fed this message, um, these kind of labels just really do not represent reality well. Mm Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think I want to start by asking you to briefly maybe outline your own journey with with food and with body image and how you maybe struggled and how you overcame your uh, struggles. And also, if you think your journey is similar to what people usually imagine when they think of right eating disorders and body image issues. Yeah, sure. So growing up, I would say I, you know, I didn't really have any type of disordered eating or really struggle with that, but I did struggle a lot with not feeling good about my body and having low self-esteem. And so those things were, were pretty tough on me. It wasn't until I went away to college and then I got to the point that I was so unhappy that I really started getting deep into some dieting and exercise, thinking that I was just trying to get healthy, maybe lose a little weight, right? And what ended up happening is it was a very slippery slope. And before I knew it, I really was knee deep in a full-blown eating disorder. Uh, as far as whether that is common, it it actually is in my experience. And from what the research shows, the research is pretty clear that well, obviously not everybody who diets ends up with an eating disorder, a good percentage of people that have eating disorders, it started with dieting. So dieting is not necessarily a harmless endeavor. It does have its risks for a lot of things. And one of those things is developing an eating disorder. So yeah, I, I hear that story, a similar one from a lot of clients and a lot of people I talk with. So I'm sure others will be able to relate to that. It's, it's not like we sign up for an eating disorder one day thinking, yeah, that sounds like fun, right? (laughs) It starts out as something that we think is going to be healthy and good for us. And before we know it, it's really snowballed into something just very consuming and very unhealthy. Yeah. I mean, a statistic that I've I am finding just absolutely terrifying is that eating disorders are the deadliest of all mental illnesses and it's like the the one that is like the highest like growing and the most common right now it is growing at at its highest rate in history 
And of course, there are many factors contributing to that. And I think, right, just like body image is something that people have struggled with like forever. But right now, I think it is it is something that we are seeing so often. And a lot of people just are taking that to a point to the point of like body dysmorphia and, and other disorders like that. And just are spending years obsessing about like what's not even there. So I wanted to ask you what we can do to improve our body image uh, before we develop, you know, uh, these sort of conditions and how can we truly feel at home in our bodies? Yeah, there's a lot to that, I will say. But one of the Mm. things I was thinking about while you were talking about how eating disorders have been on the rise while that is a complex thing and there's no one reason for that, I do think one of the big reasons is the rise of social media. If you think about how much more access we have, even from a really young age, to a lot of content that may or may not be helpful for us, right? And that may include diet culture type messages, but it also just can just um, involves a lot of looking at other people's bodies and appearances and doing a lot of comparison. And there's so much pressure nowadays, especially for young people to show up on social media for approval, for likes, right? And there's also so much bullying that goes on. I think, you know, hiding behind a computer screen or a phone screen makes it even easier for people uh, to bully their peers, right? Because it it doesn't feel, it feels a little more anonymous than doing it in person the way that it, it used to be yeah, before we had social media. So I do think social media has played a big role in that. So the flip side to that is I think being really careful about how you interact with social media can be really helpful. Um, so whether that's, you know, unfollowing accounts that make you feel bad about your body, maybe they trigger some eating disorder thoughts, or maybe they just trigger some body shame or body comparison and filling your feeds with things that are more positive, things that make you feel good, that encourage you to feel good about your body um, and to see your body as more than just what it looks like. Right. Cause our, our bodies really are yeah. so much more than that. Like the, the kite sisters say they wrote the book more than a body and they have a nonprofit uh, that they run mm-hmm. Um, called beauty redefined, but their, their motto is, yeah, I truly love their page. It's absolutely sweet. So their motto is that our bodies are, they're an instrument, right? And we don't really see them that way in our culture. You know, it's like, especially as women for females, it's our bodies are treated as our social currency. You know, that's where our value lies. Are we conventionally attractive? Do we meet the thin ideal? So there's just so much pressure on females pretty early on uh, to meet these ideals and look a certain way and to place a lot of importance on what they look like and less on their intrinsic qualities. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. And for me, right. Unfollowing accounts that are, not leaving me feeling well it was helpful for some reason I found some sort of resistance in me when I was like going through the process of unfollowing I have no idea why I've been like talking uh, about this uh, in the past on the podcast but for some reason there's just this sort of resistance when when I'm unfollowing that maybe there's just this part of me that 
wants to like keep maybe having this sort of goal that I am trying to achieve, which is not a good one, but I think I might have that side of me. But I found that really helpful. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you kind of more about like, you are a great resource because you are a food freedom therapist. So can you describe the process of therapy? Let's, let's imagine that I'm a person who is coming to you and asking for help. I have developed maybe some disordered, disordered eating patterns and, and I am asking you for help. So what is the process that you take your clients, some steps, so maybe some practices that you recommend, um, maybe some habits to, to start and to switch from the old patterns? So how does that process uh, look like? Yeah, so... I mean, for one, it's it's unique to some degree, depending on the client and where they're at when they come, what they're struggling with, what their own goals are, right? Because it's not just about what I want for them, but what do they want for themselves? Uh, so, you know, the, the beginning is really just a get to know you kind of phase where I'm finding out about why are they there? What are they hoping that I can help them with getting to know them, getting to know their background? We do spend some time usually talking about, you know, maybe the things that kind of led them to where they are. And then from there, we really start to get a clear picture of where they want to go and what kind of goals they have. And from there, we can nail down what our, what our steps are to achieve that goal and what, you know, in the clinical world, what we call our treatment plan is um, for accomplishing the things that they would like to see change. So like I said, it looks different for every client. Um, but in general, for working with eating disorder clients, it usually does involve uh, working on body image. It involves um, learning coping skills to deal with things like anxiety and depression. It involves learning intuitive eating so that we can shift away from being in that diet, diet type mentality where we rely on a lot of rigid external rules to tell us about how to eat to more of learning to listen to our bodies and trust our bodies and respond to those needs that our body's telling us it has, you know, and that's with food, it's with rest, movement, a lot of different things. So those are some big ones that yeah. are, are pretty common for most of my clients. Yeah. And, and how uh, do you like introduce a person who is coming from like very like restrictive eating patterns um, to intuitive eating? I found that you know, like this term thrown around a lot and I've really been like researching that into like trying to incorporate myself because I think we all have right maybe these meals that we've just have like in like on in our routine or just like plans that we developed but it's not necessarily intuitive for us to like reach for this sort of food so how do you take a person who has been restricting and just hadn't have a good relationship with, with food so how do you take them from that to intuitive eating and, and food freedom. Yeah. Well, it really starts with just learning about intuitive eating. So there are 10 principles. So we go through the principles, we learn them, and then we kind of walk through them step-by-step step of let's work through this. What does this look like for you? You know, how is this a challenge for you? Can you list those principles? There's um, ditch the diet mentality, get rid of the food police too. There's honor your hunger feel your fullness, um, discover the satisfaction principle, 
cope with your feelings with kindness, um, intuitive movement, feel the difference, um, gentle nutrition. I know there are some that I'm forgetting. Um, yeah, I mean, just Doug basically wanted to know, but I really like the feel your fullness. I've been reading about mindful eating lately um, from the perspective of, uh, of course, like people who, you know, are monks. So have been practicing that for a long time. And what they've been writing about is that we be, we are not in tune with our bodies and we eat often just to, we eat our anxiety and our fear and our stress. And therefore we are not full when we are full physically, we are full only when we do not longer feel that anxiety and that stress. And I think like, right, this is a very nice rule that must be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot that I end up working with clients around that Um, whether that's learning to eat in a way where you're not distracted, right? We're so, it's so common for us to eat while we're on our phones or we're still, you know, working (laughs) on our laptops or watching TV. And so when we're doing that, we're one, we're not really enjoying our food, which speaks to the satisfaction uh, principle of intuitive eating, where we really should be enjoying what we're eating, but also we're, we're missing some of those cues. Our body may be giving us that maybe we need to eat a little bit more, or maybe we're getting full and it's time to start slowing down. Um, so when we're distracted or if we are eating as a way to deal with some emotions, right. Then we're not as tuned in with the physical sensations that our body is giving us about, you know, this is, this is comfortably full. I don't want any more, or I do, I need a little bit more. I'm, I'm not satisfied yet. Yeah, exactly. I feel like our body is giving us so many cues and and I've been uh, recently talking about that with a guest who is a movement uh, therapist and and she's been talking about how really when we tune into our body, when we listen to it, we will not have to listen for like diet advice or what is good for us because like bodies are like all bodies are different all needs are different and you will in like know what is what your body needs if you will just listen to it you will know how many calories you need you will know how much rest and sleep you need some people are fine sleeping six hours some people need 10 and researching these things on google will not be helpful to you because you are a completely like specific person with specific needs and I think right developing this sort of intuition is a big factor in in all of this um and when it comes to movement I also wanted to talk about that because I think moving is you know it's supposed to be very good for us uh, but a lot of people struggling with body image and, and eating disorders like use it to hurt themselves so in a world that is, you know, just focusing on the like appearance effects of of movement, how can we improve our relationship with moving and moving not just to change that, but to actually enjoy it? I mean, I think starting with the kind of making that mental shift that you're describing, where we start to think of exercise as something different than just a way to manipulate what our bodies look like to either try to lose weight or maintain our weight. But really there's so many benefits to exercise and so many reasons to move our bodies. 
um, even in ways that we don't typically think of exercise, right? Because that's also part of it is that we get kind of close-minded because we're taught that exercise only counts if it's, you know, a certain type of exercise, whether that's cardio at the gym or lifting weights or, you know, whatever that might be when actually movement can look like a lot of different things that might be more enjoyable to a lot of people than going and spending an hour at the gym. Um, And those things actually do count, you know, quote unquote, if you, if you want to talk about it in terms of what counts and what doesn't, you know, and and there's so many benefits beyond, you know, what it, what it makes our bodies look like or, or don't. So there's the, the physical aspects of how that improves our health. It helps our mental health because it helps us manage stress and anxiety and even depression. There's a saying in the therapist world that uh, movement is one of the most underutilized antidepressants, right? Because it's, it can create endorphins, mm. which are just natural feel good chemicals. But if you're forcing yourself to do movement that you don't really enjoy, or you're forcing your body to do movement beyond what feels good, or um, you hate it and you're only doing it because you want to try to lose weight, right? Then it kills the pleasure out of it. And I think that's why so many of us can relate, you know, with the same kind of yo yo dieting where it's like on a diet, off a diet, a lot of us can also relate to doing that with exercise where we get really motivated and we're doing it for a while, but then maybe we get tired of it. We're not really enjoying it, or we don't see the results on the scale that we're hoping for. And so then we end up quitting and it's not sustainable. So that mind shift and really digging in to find some other reasons to do movement and maybe some other types of movement is a really good place to start. Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, right, I think people think about yoga or like walking, uh, just like those things usually don't count for us as exercise because they're not the quote unquote calorie burners, but they are so good for your mental health and just really, really recommended for mindfulness purposes all of those are great. And speaking of that, speaking of practices and habits, um, also wanted to to ask about that. Uh, what are some like things that you recommend to your clients to like practices that they should incorporate in their routine to feel more in tune, to deal with their anxiety um, and the roots maybe of these eating problems? Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to mention, because we haven't really talked about it yet, but so many mm-hmm. of my clients um, come in with trauma that hasn't been healed yet. And just to clarify what I mean by that, because we often think of trauma as like, you know, really big, significant things, you know, whether that is some sort of assault, or we think sometimes of, of vets going to overseas and doing war and coming back with PTSD. And all of those things are true. And those definitely represent trauma. But, you know, trauma can be much more broad than that. Trauma is really, um, in some ways, I think it's Peter Levine that defines it as it is anything that happens to us that we're just overwhelmed by in that moment. It's more than our minds or our nervous systems can handle in that moment can be defined as trauma. So, you know, it's not uncommon (laughs) when I'm working with clients to say, you know, that sounds like trauma. And actually I had a therapist say that to me back in the day, you know, that was trauma, right? 
uh, <laughs> no, no, that's, it wasn't that bad or people have gone through much worse. Right. So we tend to minimize that and, and not acknowledge or even, you know, not realize how much something impacted us. So finding out if there's some trauma and if there is doing some good healing work with a professional on that is always a good place to start. Because if we have some unresolved trauma, then a lot of the things that we're doing are often ways to try to cope with the symptoms of the trauma that we experienced and are still carrying with us. So healing that trauma will be a big piece of healing everything overall, uh, including our, our relationship with food maybe depression and anxiety and things like that as well. Uh, Some other things are, I recommend trying to find things in your life that give you joy and trying to find things in your life that you really connect with in a deep way. So we do a lot of values work where we're getting in touch with, well, what do you value? What do you care about? What are you passionate about in life? And really by connecting to those things, not, not only do you understand yourself better, And you're in a position to live a life that feels more meaningful and brings you more joy, but it's easier not to focus so much on our bodies because we're really getting more in touch with things that just are so much more meaningful than our appearance. Mm, I really love that. I, I think something that people do not really remember when they come across people struggling with eating disorders is that they do not just appear out of thin air they have these underlying roots, which usually are, you know, that we struggle with maybe our self-worth or, right, have that trauma or whatever, relationships or you're struggling at work or you just want to have that feeling of control and, and con- like, eating can give you that sense of control. And I think usually when people just come across it, they just think, oh, these people just want to look better, look nicer, and they have these weird like criteria of what it looks good. And I think we should all just have a lot more compassion when it comes to approaching people dealing with mental illness because people who, you know, are depressed and do not want to leave their bed, they are not lazy. Usually they are, you know, very demanding of themselves. However, they are just, they do not have the power to do that. And that is not their fault. And that is just not something that they want to do um, or that they have low standards for themselves. And I think a lot of the problems that we are discussing today are caused by social media in some degree. Um, And I think this diet industry is such a big one. and, And I think it's hard to find a person who has never come across um, like some kind of misinformation when it comes to like diet culture or this these like quote-unquote health um, advice. Um, so I wanted to ask you, how can we become better at recognizing the health advice that is actually healthy from the misinformation and the, the just the, the diet culture and that is not good for us. One of the things that I really encourage clients to look out for is how does something make you feel? You know, how does your body respond to it? How, how do you respond to it emotionally? If something makes you feel bad 
in the sense, like when we talk about scrolling through social media, if you're scrolling through social media and the stuff you're looking at makes you feel guilty or it makes you feel anxious, it makes you feel inferior, um, it makes your depression worse or your anxiety worse. Those are all red flags that these are probably not helpful things for you. Um, and that may just be in general, or maybe just that point in time, it's, it's not helpful for you where you're at. Um, but diet culture is so shame-based. It's very based in making you feel bad because when we feel bad, then we think we have a problem that needs to be fixed, right? I mean, really the beauty industry as a whole is like that, right? It's all about selling yeah. products because to sell, to sell a solution, you have to think there's a problem first, whether that's your, your weight or your wrinkles, your cellulite, your, you know, whatever it is, right? They've made up so many things along the way. Yeah. And like, we're supposed to look 20 and white and young and beautiful forever, you know, and that's just not realistic yeah my favorite one is like i think hip dips like that you're not supposed to have like hip dips whatever it is i think it's just like the difference between like your thighs and your hip and and i think like this is impossible to not have like you really cannot have like thigh muscles and i think this is so ridiculous you have so many like different criteria right now and and right it is just creating artificial problems you're absolutely right Yes, that's a perfect way to put it, creating artificial problems. But again, it's very lucrative, right? Because if we believe we have a problem and somebody's offering us the solution to fix it, we're willing to spend a lot of time and money and energy on what we perceive as those solutions. So we need to be very critical consumers of messages, whether that's social media or even commercials, right? I'm, I'm a lot more cognizant of that than I was even before because now I have kids. And so I see a lot of things through their eyes. You know, I'm imagining as they're watching something, how would they be perceiving this? What might they be taking away from this? And whether it's hair dye, or it's the wrinkle cream, or it's the weight loss ads, you know, it's very clear to me that, wow, they're getting messages that we're supposed to look a certain way. And that's really important that we look a certain way. And we should be spending a lot of time and money on looking that way. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think that we tend to be critical consumers of, of media like we should, and that can make a huge difference. You know, when I started the shift of Instead of blaming myself or feeling bad about myself because I didn't meet, you know, the standards of beauty or whatever it was at the time, I'm a perfectionist, as many people with eating disorders are, um, mm. that, you know, I shifted some of that into being angry that this was the message that was being pushed on me, that these are the messages that are being pushed on us as a whole, especially as women and little girls and young women and started feeling a little angry about that. And that was an important shift. It felt empowering. Mm, yeah, I think anger in that way can be helpful. Um, I think that helped me with climate anxiety uh, because I was so... I felt guilty for like contributing because, you know, I, I bought a plastic cup once or something and I just, just stopped myself and I was like, actually, this is not my fault. The whole thing, this situation is not caused by me. It's caused by many industries and governments 
that do not care about the climate and just contribute to greenhouse gases emissions. And right, I just decided to be angry and let myself go because this is not me that imposed this anxiety on myself. It's just the society that told me, right, I should look like this. I should uh, do this. I should, you know, try to be um, more sustainable, prettier, healthier, more fit. Uh, when actually all those problems that I'm trying to solve were not were are not caused by me. Actually, I do not have those problems. So getting angry, I think, it's a nice way to just kind of become sort of free. And there are so many myths and misconceptions, right? I wanted to ask you, what is for you like the most ridiculous um, like diet myth that you came across or that you used to believe, but now that you went th through that journey, now know that this is so crazy. What are some diet myths that you just find ridiculous? Oh gosh, there's so many really. Um, and some of them I forget about because I really try to avoid that world as much as possible, although you can't mm -hmm. hardly avoid it completely. But, you know, whether it's things like, oh, you shouldn't eat after 6 p.m. or you should avoid fruit because it's got too much sugar um, or, you know, when you cook vegetables, they should you know, cook them in as little oil as possible. It's like, well, no wonder people don't like vegetables. You know, we don't cook them in yummy ways. You know, I actually eat more vegetables now as an intuitive eater than I did before because I allow myself to cook them in ways that they taste really good. Right. So, you know, so some of those rules about, you know, all there's so many dieting hacks, you know, quote unquote, that are just so harmful and really just totally bogus, but it's hard because they, we hear them all the time and they're often spouted by people that we perceive as experts, whether that's because they're a doctor or because, you know, they have a lot of followers on TikTok or Instagram or whatever. And so it can, it can be hard to kind of untangle what is good, valid advice and what isn't. I, I always recommend people when it is, if it comes to nutrition, especially, to find an intuitive eating dietitian uh, who can really help you untangle some of that nutrition stuff from diet culture and help you eat in a way that feels good emotionally, but is also caretaking of your physical health. And that, and that can be hard to do on our own in the culture now, because there's so much, I mean, there's conflicting advice, right? It's like, <laughs> don't eat, don't eat fruit. It's got too much sugar, but here, drink my smoothie, yeah. you know, that. <laughs> that's got mostly sugar, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it can be a little confusing and difficult to navigate on your own. So uh, I, I highly recommend an intuitive eating dietitian that can help you navigate that and figure out what does it look like to eat in a way that is enjoyable and healthy for you. Mm, yeah, exactly. I think when, when you see like conflicting pieces of advice that you know, one day eggs are absolutely unhealthy and just like will like cause heart disease. And then you see like eat five eggs for breakfast. Then I think you should just think again and think that probably there is no, like none of these are true. Probably the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, right. I'm getting just a bit like angry just speaking about this because I think like there are so many different like the detoxes for example like what are you trying to detox from like, like drinking juice 
for a month like how is that supposed to be good for you it's just very frustrating because when you are a young person um and when you just you you don't have these critical skills yet and you don't know how to differentiate an expert for from someone who has an opinion and all like very often experts um quote-unquote like people who have degrees in in those kind of stuff are those who are spreading like harmful information and i think it's hard for these young people to differentiate who is trustworthy um do you have any like advice uh, for for that for for how can we know that a person will give us actually good like pieces of advice when it comes to nutrition yeah like i said i when it comes to a dietitian, I really recommend somebody that is an actual dietitian. So just a little information on how some of the different differentiations work, at least here in the U S this may be different, um, in different places around the world, but here in the United States, we often hear dietitian and nutritionist use interchangeably, and they're not necessarily the same thing. So a dietitian is somebody who has gone to graduate school and has an advanced graduate degree in the science of dietetics. And then they've gone through thousands of hours of supervision, whereas a nutritionist pretty much isn't regulated and anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. Mm-hmm. You can go online and get, you know, a 30 hour 10 hour, whatever, uh, certificate and call yourself a nutritionist. So making sure that you see somebody who has good credentials, who's actually gone through school and understands the body and the science behind food and how it affects our bodies. And then, like I said, on top of that, I would look for somebody that is versed in intuitive eating because, Dietetic schools, unfortunately, are still pushing a lot of the diet culture paradigm, very weight centric, focused on weight, weight management. And so, Mm. um, you know, there are going to be, unfortunately, a lot of dietitians who are still in that mentality. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's sad because, you know, I think for a lot of people, and I think for all of us, to some point, we have that neural connection between like, maybe higher weight, fat, and it equals bad. It equals for us to something like disgusting or or unhealthy. And it's just like sort of wired in our brain. And it's hard to rewrite that because like for like generations, we've been told that. Um, So again, I would say just, you know, maybe maybe lead with compassion um, to anyone struggling with that because it's not just one day they can wake up and decide, oh, I do not struggle with eating anymore. I just decided to not do that anymore because, you know, they have these sort of neuropathways and it's hard to rewrite that. It's possible, but it's hard. But like talking about it from a different perspective, because there are people on the other side of the spectrum who are struggling with like overeating or binge eating and they are eating maybe too much or like highly processed foods and weight loss can actually be a healthy thing for you so for you how can someone make sure that their weight loss process is health is a healthy one and how would you lead a person who is struggling with with that so how what are some criteria that you think they should meet in order to make sure that 
they will not uh, fall into that maybe disordered eating patterns or, or like highly restricted. Uh, how can we make weight loss healthy? Uh, so a couple things about some of the stuff you just said, but I mean, first and foremost, there we do not have any way to intentionally pursue weight loss that one is shown to be sustainable or to be safe. So really the pursuit of weight loss itself is not the, the best goal. Um, because again, mm -hmm. there's just, there's no research where we can see that, oh, this is the way to do that in a way that actually is sustainable and doesn't have risks emotionally and physically. Right. So you know, all the studies show pretty clearly that, you know, approximately 95% of people who go on any kind of dieting or intentional weight loss pursuits are going to gain any weight that they lose back, usually plus some, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, that's probably too much to get into <laughs> in this particular podcast. But um, because of that, you know, it's, it's not necessarily an ethical or research-based thing to do to encourage people to lose weight. And there's also a lot of assumption in that, that just because somebody's in a higher BMI that they need to lose weight. This is where it kind of goes back to if we unpack whether or not it's automatically true that if somebody's in a larger body, they're unhealthy. That may not be true, right? They might be in a larger body, but metabolically, they're quite healthy, right? We think we can see health and we can't necessarily I work with a lot of people and I know a lot of people in my personal life who are in thin bodies and are not metabolic, metabolically healthy. Right. Yeah. So we make a lot of assumptions about if you're in a thin body, you must be healthy. And if you're in a fat body, you must be unhealthy. And that, again, that's not necessarily true. So even the assumption that because somebody is in a higher BMI category that they need to lose weight you know, that I would encourage people to challenge that assumption. You know, there's that whole health at every size movement, the body respect book by Dr. Bacon uh, is a really good one to start with and just get getting into a lot of that health at every size stuff, or it challenges that paradigm that fat equals bad or necessarily equals unhealthy. You know, now if there are health conditions, there are a lot of ways to promote health and increase health without focusing on weight loss, whether that's increasing movement, incorporating more nutritious foods through eating more vegetables and fruits, right? And we can do that in a way that's very weight neutral. And we can do that in a way that doesn't shame certain foods or vilify certain foods, right? Like you mentioned processed foods, processed foods are fine, right? Now, if all we eat are processed foods or all we eat is foods that are high in sugar, are we going to feel good? No. <laughs> um, but I also have clients that are so focused on healthy eating that they also don't feel good because they're eating too much fiber because they're eating too many vegetables, right? So really this, yeah, this vilification of certain foods is not necessarily helpful either. So really looking at it in a much more holistic perspective and thinking about health as a much bigger thing than just weight is, is something I, I encourage people to mm. do. Yeah. I mean, this is such an interesting approach. Um, so you would say that there is not really such a thing like a healthy weight loss, right? I mean, not intentionally. Yeah. Now that's not to say that weight loss can't happen. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, sometimes when I work with people, they they do end up losing weight. People always want to know at the outset, you know, what is this going to do to my body? It's like, I have no idea because I don't know where you're at right now. And I don't know what this process is going to look like for you, but I can guarantee you w- one of three things. You're either going to lose weight, you're going to stay the same, or you're going to gain weight, <laughs> which is not the answer <laughs> that we typically want to hear. So you know, have people lost weight while they are healing their relationship with food? Sure, that can definitely happen if they're habitually eating more than what their body wants and needs by overriding those hunger signals or whatever. You know, one of the things that's a misconception about overeating and especially binge eating, we think of that as a disorder of eating too much food. And while It's true that when you're talking about a binge episode, you're eating a lot of food in one sitting. It's usually driven by restriction, meaning there are periods of dieting where I'm trying not to eat, you know, whether it's I'm trying to keep a certain calorie limit or I'm trying to only eat certain types of food. And it's the restriction that drives that binging cycle. So in a way, even binge eating disorder is a an eating disorder of restriction. We have to heal that, that restriction, that deprivation, the dieting before we can heal the binging. And so, right. There are so many, maybe like not misconceptions, but not a lot of knowledge about uh, these topics. And especially I think it is harmful when we are dealing with someone struggling with eating disorders. So what do you think the people who are family members or friends of people with eating disorders, what they should know, what they should say and what should they not say uh, to make sure that they are supporting them and not causing any more harm. Yeah, that's so hard. I just want to sympathize for anybody that's in that situation. I can appreciate that so much more now being a mom um, because I think about my poor parents when I was in recovery and, you know, they, they made a lot of mistakes, even with the best of intention, because it is really hard to know what to do, what to say, how to support someone. So I just want to validate that and offer some empathy and that I, I think the biggest thing is just to start with an openness of, I don't necessarily understand this and I don't know what to say or do, but I want to learn Right. So whether that's being open to conversations with your loved one and asking non-judgmental questions, um, it can look like going online. Uh, the National Eating Disorder Association, NIDA, has so much information online uh, for people to access to learn about eating disorders and how to support someone that has an eating disorder. You can also uh, get a book. There's the Eating Disorder Trap. And that's a good one. It's a pretty easy read. It doesn't go into a lot of depth, but there's plenty of good information in there to challenge some of the misconceptions. There's so many uh, stereotypes and misconceptions about eating disorders in the media. Um, and so what do you think are some of them? Oh, one of the biggest ones I run into is that you have to look a certain way to have an eating disorder. So the research shows that 6% of people with eating disorders are underweight. That means 94% of people with eating disorders are not underweight, right? So we have this idea because of what we see on TV that, well, I'm, I'm not sick enough or they're not sick enough because, you know, it's not a real issue because they're not underweight. They don't look a certain way. And that's just not true. And that's a really harmful one because a lot of people avoid getting help 
because they don't think it must be that serious. Or even, even when they're in my office, they'll say, well, it can't be that big of a deal. I'm not underweight, you know, and it's like, ah, not necessarily true. And that's a stereotype. You know, most people aren't that have eating disorders. So, and that doesn't make them not dangerous. Um, and it certainly doesn't mean it doesn't take a quality or a toll on your quality of life, on your mental health, your emotional, social health, spiritual health, those things as well. Um, so that's a big one that I see. Um, other ones are that this is something that only young white girls struggle with. You know, we see eating disorders across all genders, boys get them men men get them. We see them across all ages. I've seen clients in their sixties um, that, you know, it, it, it can even affect other ethnicities. You know, we don't talk a lot about it in say like the black or Asian communities, the Latino communities, but you know, there are eating disorders there too. And I think this idea that, oh, this is just a white person problem or a female problem prevents people from seeking help because they think I'm the only one, or there's something weird about me. Um, or, I must not really have an issue. So just recognizing that eating disorders are a lot more diverse than what we typically think of them as. Yeah. I think I, I also like, we often assume that it's a problem that is like stemming from privilege, but I think it doesn't necessarily have to be true. It often is a coping mechanism. So if a person is, you know, dealing with, with some financial issues or with stress or war like all these terrible problems it can happen to anyone right and so like maybe to to end i i want to ask you for all the people who are struggling um with with maybe right they're afraid for a family member how they should approach that um what do you think they should recommend to help right what what is the process if like something happened for example to to your children how would you as a parent uh, lead them through that yeah well like i said going back to having a a willingness and an openness to learn and then also just having a very loving judgmental curiosity with the person that you love that you think is struggling in a sense of like, again, going back to that, I, I may not understand, but I, I want to learn and I want to understand and I want to be here for you. Eating disorders are a tough thing because sometimes by trying to love and support someone with an eating disorder, they can get really defensive or push us away. I say sometimes trying to support and love somebody with an eating disorder is like trying to hug a porcupine. <laughs> uh, it can mm. be a little prickly. So not taking that stuff personally and just really keeping in mind that your goal is to help this person be as healthy emotionally and physically as possible. Um, and, and just letting them know that you're there. So having a conversation that starts out as simply as, Hey, I, I'm really concerned. Here's what I'm seeing, or here's what I'm noticing. And here's what I'm concerned about. You know, is there something going on or, you know, what do you think? Are you feeling like there's something going on or that you might be struggling? I think that's a great way to just open the door to some good conversation. Mm. Well, on that note, thank you so much. I think this has been such a wonderfully educational interview so thank you so much for your advice and for all your knowledge if when it comes to 
like listeners wanting to learn more about all of that or about you, where should they go? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. My handle is at food freedom therapist. And then you can go to my website, which is just foodfreedomtherapy.com. I have resources on there that you can look at. I have, uh, I call it a jumpstart guide for intuitive eating. If you kind of want to get you know, a quick overview of the principles and how to get started on them. I mean, if you're serious, I really recommend getting the intuitive eating book, maybe working with a professional, but you could download that jumpstart guide as a place to kind of get a feel for what is this all about (laughs) as a place to start. Um, And then Mm. if there's anything that I can do to help anyone connect with resources that they need, please don't hesitate to email me through my website or DM me on Instagram. I'm happy to help and help connect you with a professional local to you. If you need help with anything, whether that's a dietitian or a therapist. So I just, I'm really passionate about helping people heal their relationship with their bodies and with food, because I know how consuming it can be. And there's just so much freedom on the other side of that. And I want everybody to be able to experience that. And I think you're doing a great job. And I think this conversation will be a a way that you can help a lot of people. And I'm sure that you have. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. This was important stuff that we talked about. So I appreciate the opportunity. This was a very lovely chat. So thank you, Sherry, for coming once again. And now before I go further into my insights, I just want to say that I am anxious, um, just like you and probably many of us right now. I worry when I read the news or when I am on social media, when I talk to family and friends, um, I just hear about one topic and it's war. And it is overwhelming and unhealthy to worry this much. Yet, at times, I just feel hopeless. The actions of Putin and his government are unacceptable. But let's be honest, it is all just scary and overwhelming. And I I feel anxious. But today, I had a conversation that changed my view about all this. We were talking about that famous quote that... The only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. And in that chat, I suddenly realized that I do not agree with that statement. Of course, there are so many people who seek power at all costs. There always have and there always will be such people. And therefore, there will be people, there will always be people wanting to wage war and create conflict. But As much as we learn about these people and waging wars, we also learn about waging peace. We learn about the power of uniting. We know that from all the good that came from creating the United Nations and NATO, we learn that we can come together and we can stop fighting. We learn the power of diplomatic agreements. And further, history also goes far, far back. And so, you know, as archaeologists and anthropologists study the first communities and our primal craving for power, we learn how to help these power-hungry people. They are usually just lonely, insecure, and they feel misunderstood. They have most likely experienced trauma and have been told their whole lives that getting power is the only way that they will ever be enough. And so I realized that 
I pity the individuals who let this tragedy happen. I do not condone their actions, nor I justify them. I just pity them. And I am so sorry for all the hurt that they must have undergo and must undergo on a daily basis. I mean, look at all these people and look at all these terrible actions they are doing. They must really hate themselves to cause such despair in other people. I realized I do not want to feel angry anymore. I do not want to feel angry at any of these governments or soldiers. I think there's enough anger and violence already. And so I come to you and propose that we all just lead with compassion towards one another. I'm so sorry to everyone, directly or indirectly suffering from this conflict on both sides. And I really do ask anyone who is spreading words of hate and discrimination towards Russian citizens to stop. It is not the work of the civilians. They didn't make that choice. And the Russian propaganda is very powerful, so very often they do not know what their government is doing. There are many protests right now in Moscow and St. Petersburg to stop the attacks on Ukraine. They are filled with people who are risking their freedom to show their disagreement and loyalty to Ukrainian citizens. So please do not generalize and put your prejudice aside. Because what we need now is to work together to understand one another and not create even more conflict. I do believe we learn from history. We have learned the importance of trust and of communication it has worked before and I think and I hope and I believe it will work again. So right now I am sending you much, much love and light your way. No matter where you are, what language you are speaking, I, I know that we can all work together and overcome this. So until I talk to you next week, please do take care of yourself and if you can, of someone else too. Being Better is edited and produced by Julia Spohr. You can learn more about the show and about other work over at our website, beingbetter.info. And the Instagram is at beingbetter.pod. If you want to support us, the best way to do that is by word of mouth. So if you can, please tell your family, your friends, and what the hell, also tell your enemies. You know, we don't discriminate on this podcast. So tell them about the show, tell them about why you like it and about why you like the incredibly amazing and very humble host. You can also share it on social media platforms and if you tag us, we'll make sure to reply. Thank you so much for joining us today and I'll speak to you very, very soon. 